Thank you, Siobhan, and thank you to the Academy for inviting me here to contribute to what is a wonderful series, and Siobhan and I were talking about how many more groups of sisters we could have added to this. It's interesting to think of how active women have been over at least the last century and how within families women were, were active together. Um, I want to talk to you today about Hannah, Margaret, Mary and Kathleen, the four sisters of the Sheehy family. Very different personalities, all very strong characters in their own way and hardly surprising given their lineage of strong people who also possess strong political beliefs on both the paternal and maternal sides. So I'm going to start off by talking a little bit about the maternal side, the McCoys. Their mother, Elizabeth, who was always known as Bessie, was the fourth of six children. Her widowed mother ran two or three farms with the help of her older sons, and that was unusual enough. It was said, though, that Bessie and her older sister, Catherine, always known as Kate, were sent to convent boarding school in Limerick and not expected to simply do the chores at home. Bessie was a strong-minded woman, intelligent and ambitious, who had the fighter in her too, said Hannah, very proudly. And when Bessie's brothers, Dan and Pat, were arrested as Fenians and lodged in Mountjoy Jail, Bessie defied the hostility of the local priest, obtained the keys to the parish church and led the evening rosary on behalf of her brothers to a packed congregation. So Kate would become Hannah's godmother. And when Kate moved to Dublin, her husband died very soon after that. Kate became the proprietor of Barry's Hotel in Great Denmark Street, which was very close to the Sheehy family home. And she was a huge support to the family. Both Bessie and Kate prized education. So three out of the four Sheehy sisters, very unusually for the time, became university graduates. On the paternal side, the Sheehys, David Sheehy, their father, was born into a moderately prosperous family in County Limerick. He had an older brother, Eugene, and a sister, Mary. Their father, David, owned a mill and apparently dreamed of both his boys becoming priests. Richard was strongly nationalist in outlook, so he didn't let his sons go to Maynooth. It was the seminary that had been set up by the British, so he sent them to Paris to the Irish College. Only Eugene became a priest, but he was a very politicised priest. He was known as the Land League priest, and he became godfather to Hannah. Uh, Eugene served time with Parnell in Kilmainham Jail during the Land War. David didn't become a priest. He returned to Ireland and joined the IRB. He became a Fenian. He took part in a raid on Mallow Barracks and then was forced to escape by going to America for a while. But when he returned to Ireland, he moved into the mainstream of nationalist politics and he became a mill owner like his father. He married Bessie McCoy in 1876 and they lived at first in Canturk, County Cork, where Hannah was born the following year. They then moved to another mill in County Tipperary and the other Sheehy children were born in quick succession. So you have it there. Um, Margaret was born two years after Hannah, followed by the two boys, Richard, known as Dick, and Eugene. Mary was born then, and Kathleen, the youngest, in 1886. 
And they were a politicised little group, according to Hannah's memoirs. Their favourite game was that of evictions and emergency men. But no one wanted to take the part of bailiff or peeler, because everyone wanted to be the evicted family guarding their home against the crowbar and fortified with water, hayforks and other means of defence. Because Hannah was the older, she was, I think, more exposed to politics at an early age, and she remembered visiting her uncle Eugene in Kilmaine, and because she went with Aunt Kate, who was a member of the Ladies' Land League, and the Ladies' Land League used to bring food in to the political prisoners. David Sheehy became a Nationalist Member of Parliament for South Galway in 1885, and he then took part in the plan of campaign and served a jail sentence in 1887, and altogether was to be imprisoned on six occasions. Um, so another early memory of Hannah's was visiting her father in jail. She said, dashing across the prison yard as other children dash across the playground. Uh, it doesn't seem to have been an experience shared by her siblings. So in 1887, when Kathleen the youngest was just one, the family moved to Dublin so David could now commute between London and Dublin now that he was a member of Parliament in Westminster. So at first they lived in Drumcondra, but then they moved nearer the city centre to Belvedere Place, an impressively tall house, as you can see. Um, and the family in 1896, you can see from the left here, Margaret, and then you have um, at her feet, Mary, um, the other uh, girl in the white uh, dress is Kathleen, and on the far right you have Hannah. Eugene is seated and Dick standing behind him. And then you have the proud parents standing, Bessie and David. And it's Uncle Eugene, the priest, who's in the middle of the photo. He was very much the, the patriarch, even though he didn't actually have children. But he was the one who the family quite often um, respected, and, 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 and he kind of had a, a very controlling, commanding uh, position within the family. But here in North Dublin, uh, the, the girls went to the Dominican school in Eccles Street, and Hannah studied with the Dominicans when she was preparing later on for her Bachelor of Arts. But then the Loretto Order of Nuns also set up university classes in St. Stephen's Green, and Mary and Kathleen Sheehy went there. So the girls had a, an education that was quite similar to their brothers, except as girls, they couldn't take part in the university lectures, which they complained about bitterly. And girls were still a tiny minority amongst students. In 1911, there were still only 280 female students and over 3,000 males. Margaret was the only uh, sibling who didn't go to university. Eugene and Dick both studied law. Margaret's interest was drama and theatrics, and uh, later on she uh, uh, taught elocution. But for a lot of the time, the Sheehy household was very woman-centred. David was in London, and it was always full of people. When, when one reads the letters from Hannah to Frank, for example, there's always a paying lodger as the family never had much money. Uh, MPs weren't paid in those days. David simply got an allowance from the party. There were cousins uh, up visiting from the country. There was only one servant, a live-in servant. And Aunt Kate and her daughter Olive were very frequent visitors. Hannah described what it was like when she went to Paris as an au pair, and it gives a, a good impression. She said, Maggie, Mary, Kathleen, Mother, Minnie the maid, and Aunt Kate were all in floods of tears as she left. 
She felt guilty at leaving Mary and Kathleen, now aged 16 and 14, because she felt very involved with their education and development as young women. And showing that the Hatt family really didn't have a, a lot of money, her room was then let out to an Englishman who paid one pound a week receiving breakfast and tea in return. Hannah said it was a huge relief. I'm not a burden. My room is contributing to the fund, she wrote Sir Frank. A, a language exchange system for girls was organised in Ireland in 1904, and Mary and Kathleen both benefited from this. It meant that pupils from Eccles Street could now spend a year in Amiens in France, perfecting their language skills. Germaine Fontaine, who came to know the family very well, spent the Christmas of 1904 in Belvedere Place as an exchange student. And her reminiscences contain telling little sketches of each family member. Margaret, she said, majestic and beautiful in a rather haughty way. Mary, whom I knew and liked very much, gentle and lovely. Kathleen, very jolly and dynamic, about the same age as me. Dick, whom I admired greatly, because he seemed to be a well of knowledge. Eugene, very amusing with his deadpan humour, skinny and bony, but full of vitality. I soon got to know the oldest daughter, Hannah. She, too, was very attractive because she knew how to incorporate more subtly all the qualities of the others. It's interesting that Germaine's daughter, Andre, would later marry Owen Sheheskeffington, the, uh, the son of Hannah and Frank. Mary was apparently the one with the looks, and Stanislaus Joyce wrote in his diary, she's very handsome and wears an immense plait of soft black hair, which would look like um, that from the photo, but that actually is Kathleen. Mary obviously has her hair up at that stage, because Mary's there second from the left. Many agreed that Mary was the prettiest one, but she was more than merely a pretty face. James Joyce, who knew the family better than his brother, confided that in his opinion, Mary Sheehy seemed to have a great contempt for many of the people she knew. I think that was because he, ha he had a very soft spot for Mary and she apparently rebuffed him. But as the Sheehy children matured and developed their own friendships, the house became a notable venue for people from many different walks of life. You were able to have friendships between the sexes and Sheehy at homes were held on the second Sunday of each month. One of the young visitors recalled the genuine homeliness of old David and Mrs Sheehy, who were open-hearted and had an old-style Irish welcome for everybody, young and old, rich and less rich. Entertainment wasn't lavish, refreshments were limited to tea and sandwiches, but attributes of wits and quick thinking were highly prized. Germaine Fontaine, used to the formality of the French, found herself astounded, she said, by the heaps of people who found seats where they could from the basement to the staircase. One of the visitors said, in those days, we invented our own amusements and there was no lack of imagination. Joyce and many of the UCD and El Royal students came to the Sundays in Belvedere Place. Joyce was then gay and boyish, flinging himself into topical charades. He loved to dress up and produce plays and parodies and to sing old folks ballads in his sweet tenor. Margaret was the instigator of many of their plays and charades. When she persuaded Joyce to write a paper on Ibsen for her literary group, Hannah commented wryly, power of the smile. She, Margaret enjoyed clothes and drama and the gossip of everyday life, impatient with those who preferred boring conversations and politics. 
She and Hannah cooperated in writing a play called Cupid's Confidant, with Joyce playing the part of the villain, Geoffrey Fortescue, at a public performance at a cafe in Grafton Street. So what about the politics of the Sheehy family? The first thing that um, all of the siblings uh, got involved in um, was uh, the Young Ireland branch. They had, the United Ireland League was a support organisation for the Irish Parliamentary Party, and it developed a youth branch in Dublin, the Young Ireland branch, and it was mainly made up of former students. So you had Richard and Eugene Sheehy, Tom Kettle, Frank Skeffington, Francis Cruz O'Brien, Frank Culhane. They're all names that we'll come to know. And unusually, after a determined effort by Hannah and other women who insisted that a very reluctant secretary take their entrance fee, the branch also accepted women as members. So Hannah, Mary and Kathleen were members. And in 1910, Kathleen actually became vice president. Hannah was also a member of the Irish Women's Suffrage and Local Government Association, which is the first suffrage organisation in Dublin. She joined in 1902, and her three sisters all paid shilling subscriptions that year and did so for the next three years. I think Margaret must have been persuaded by Hannah, as she really didn't show any sign of being interested in politics. And when the militant organisation, the Irish Women's Franchise League, was formed in 1908 by Hannah and her friend Margaret Cousins, Mary and Kathleen both joined. And the Sheehy family and friends provided a significant proportion of the early league membership. Um, one of the newspaper reports and votes for women talked about um, a, a, a meeting of the Franchise League that took place at Mrs Barry's, i.e. Aunt Kate, um, in January 1909, where Kathleen Sheehy was reported to have made a brilliant debut as a speaker. And all the husbands of the Sheehy sisters were Young Island branch members at some time. So how did the Sheehy marriage fit in with the plans of the parents for this new political dynasty that would help shape the future of Ireland when home rule was achieved? Hannah and Frank Skeffington married in 1903, uniting their names to Sheehy Skeffington to signify the equality of their marriage. But they had a very lengthy engagement beforehand, having to wait until Frank was in a position to support a wife, despite the fact that Hannah was um, earning some of a living as a teacher. At one stage, Frank decided very impatiently that the engagement had to be known publicly and he suggested that Hannah let her sisters into the secret before they left for school. He said, tell Mary and Kathleen and show them the ring in your room. That would be sufficient, I think, to ensure publicity. But Hannah didn't do this. She was still a dutiful daughter and the engagement had to continue for another 18 months. And Frank, when he wrote to her, had to write care of the GPO rather than addressing his letters to Belvedere Place as daily letters to Hannah would have aroused much comment from a household filled with younger sisters and brothers. At first she was used rushing down to be first in the morning to collect the post and finding this too much of a strain, particularly as you had at least three or four postal deliveries a day and Frank wrote more than once a day, even though Hannah kept on trying to get him to curb his letter writing. But after marriage, uh, when they renounced religion and didn't get their son baptised, and then they supported Kathleen in a big row over whether she could marry the agnostic and penniless Francis Cruz O'Brien, they gradually moved away from the Sheehy parents. 
At one stage, David Sheehy wrote to Hannah to order her and her husband to stay away from Belvedere Place. And this provoked an outrage response from Hannah, who accused her father of having become an Eastern Pasha in his dictatorial views. And she had about four different versions of her response before she finally decided on the most diplomatic one to send him. The first ones were extremely angry. At first, Margaret did exactly what was expected of her. She married Frank Culhane, a solicitor from a wealthy conservative Catholic family in 1907. And Frank had been the secretary to the Young Irelanders, and they had four children in quick succession. Mary, he was always feminist in outlook, critical of all institutions for their male bias, married Tom Kettle in a smart society wedding in 1909. A report of the wedding said it was an event full of suffrage atmosphere. The bride wore a Votes for Women badge pinned to her white gown and another mounted in her floral wreath. Many of the guests also wore badges. John Redmond, leader of the Irish party, and many other Irish party politicians were wedding guests as befitting the marriage of one of the most brilliant MPs, Tom Kettle, to the daughter of one of the most senior of the older generation of MPs. And in June 1910, Hannah and Mary travelled over to London with a small group of Irish women as part of a united campaign to support a conciliation bill for suffrage going through Parliament. And Mary was very active in those early years of the Franchise League, and Tom Kettle in Westminster was seen as one of the greatest champions of suffrage, not only for Irish women, but for women generally, and was highly regarded as a speaker for suffrage. However, with the Home Rule crisis as it developed, once the Franchise League came into conflict with the Irish party, both Mary and Tom were less visible as League supporters. Finally, the youngest daughter, Kathleen, with a BA in literature and an MA, um, she remained unmarried till 1911, and she worked in the Franchise League offices when they were set up, and was a strong, if less militant, supporter of the suffrage cause. Kathleen's great passion was the revival of the Irish language, becoming a teacher of Irish and eventually writing the textbook Irish Grammar, which for apparently for many years was the only one in existence. Her defiance of her parents in wanting to marry Cruz O'Brien was out of character for Kathleen. She remained strongly Catholic all her life. She didn't want to go against the beliefs of her parents, but she was in love. As Donald Aitkinson, who's the biographer of her son, Connor Cruz O'Brien, said, Kathleen had to put up with advice from three older sisters, each of whom knew better than she how to go about everything she did. And the Sheehys in this row over the marriage divided on fairly predictable lines. Some, particularly Mary and the parents, were strongly Catholic. Margaret and Eugene more easygoing in their views, while Hannah, Frank and Francis Cruz O'Brien represented, in the eyes of the parents at least, the extreme of godless radicalism. Dick Sheehy also took his parents' side in the long-running saga of whether she could marry uh, Cruz O'Brien without breaking her parents' hearts. Hannah's diary entry for February 1909 included, Cruz O'Brien affair starts, fierce henceforth. And on the 17th of March, she noted coolness in Belvedere still. On one famous occasion, Frank was thrown out of Belvedere Place by Dick Sheehy, but he picked himself up, walked back in, and resumed the argument with David Sheehy, insisting that violence solved nothing. 
But it is likely that the Sheehy-Cruz-O'Brien marriage would never have come about if it wasn't for Hannah and Frank and their efforts, and their arguments eventually helped to win the day. It took a long while for the wounds in the family to heal, but there wasn't any permanent difference between the sisters. They always gave each other unstinting support through the worst of times. And when Hannah was interviewed in later life, she said that quotation that I, I've used for um, the lecture, that sisters were truly a precious boon. And the sisters needed to be that precious boon, as those golden years at the start of the century when the inhabitants of Belvedere Place seemed to be on the cusp of a new age of self-government in which many of them would play prominent roles, would now come to an end with the outbreak of the First World War and all these hopes were to be shattered. And really, when we're tracing what happens after 1914, what we can say really is we start with the, the fall of the House of Sheehy. In March 1915, David Sheehy was declared bankrupt Belvedere Place, the scene of so much good companionship, was left empty as David and Bessie went to live with Margaret and the Culhane family, and the Sheehy home became part of the war effort. In June 1915, Frank was given a year's prison sentence because of his anti-recruitment campaign, a protest about the war now raging in Europe. He went on hunger and thirst strike. While his family and in-laws wanted a campaign for him, it was very difficult for some. Tom Kettle had immediately enlisted in the army and was actively recruiting for soldiers to fight in France. Eugene Sheehy had enlisted in the Dublin Fusiliers, and David Sheehy, as a loyal follower of Redmond, backed the Irish party's support for Britain. So as Hannah admitted, she and Frank were a small minority in the family. In these circumstances, expressions of support for Frank required a determined suppression of people's personal views. So Mary Kettle, who was on holiday in Wales, wrote immediately of her admiration for the splendid courage to support your ideas, which Frank and Hannah so obviously possessed. But mindful of their past disagreements over religion, she worded her goodbye with care. And if you let me say, God help you, your loving sister. Kathleen was at home in Dublin and she kept the various scattered members of the family informed of the latest developments, while Cruz O'Brien used all his contacts on behalf of his brother-in-law. On the seventh day, he had good news. He wrote confidentially of his intervention with the Secretary of State. There would be no forcible feeding and Frank should be out that evening. But he said, do Hannah, try to get him away after this. They're apt to be savage. Kathleen will tell you more. Cheer up, they're determined not to kill him this time. Mary wrote when Frank had been released, quote, Though we do not quite agree on politics, still you both fight splendidly. It's dreadful to think what you've both gone through. I've been very anxious and worried, but Kathleen was good and wrote every day. Really, I did not know how fond I was of Frank till this, but I'm almost a pro-German now. But there was more heartbreak. Frank Culhane died in March 1916 of a brain aneurysm. And during, because it was during the First World War, Margaret then got work as a welfare superintendent in the National Shell Factory in Dublin, because she had now to be the family breadwinner. She was one of the few middle-class women to work in a factory in Dublin during the war. We'll come back to Margaret briefly later. Life thereafter was often a hard struggle for her, but it did take a very unexpected course. 
The next tragedy is the, the well-known one, um, that of the murder of Frank Sheehy Skeffington and the cover-up of what had happened. Um, Frank had supported the ideals of the Easter Rising, but not its methods of warfare, had been horrified by the looting, believing it put the idealism of the Rising in a bad light. He and Hannah had both gone into Dublin when the Rising was on. Hannah had gone to the GPO, offered her services, and had delivered food and messages to the College of Surgeons. The first person she saw when she went to the GPO was her uncle Eugene, who was an old friend of Tom Clark's, um, and, and was there in his role as confessor. Hannah went back home that evening to Rathmines, worried about what might happen to Owen if he was left just with the maid. Uh, Frank stayed on in town, trying unsuccessfully to organise a citizen's militia to prevent the looting. And he was walking home on that Easter Tuesday evening when he was arrested by a British patrol, later taken out as a hostage around the streets, where he witnessed acts of indiscriminate killings on the orders of Bowen Colthurst. That night, Frank and two other journalists were taken out to the yard of Portobello Barracks, shot dead, and their bodies buried in the barracks yard. Hannah wasn't informed of her husband's murder, and she spent the next few days trying to find out why he hadn't come home. On the Friday, by which time she said horrible rumours had reached her, she tried to see a doctor connected to the barracks, but found herself stopped by the police, and she discovered that she herself was being watched. And there's a, a press uh, picture of, of Hannah with her sister Mary um, uh, as, she, as they... Uh, afterwards when they, when they found out what had happened. Her sisters, Mary and Margaret, offered to inquire on her behalf. They went to Rathmines police station, who told them to go to Portobello Barracks. On arriving there, they first inquired for the whereabouts of their brother, Lieutenant Eugene Sheehy, who was garrisoned somewhere in the city. They received a courteous reply until they then asked about their brother-in-law, Frank Skethington, the young officer, in some confusion, excused himself and went to consult his superiors. To their astonishment, Mary and Margaret found themselves under arrest, accused of having been seen talking to Sinn Féiners. The only person they knew who could be described in such terms was their sister, Hannah. And the women were then marched across the barrack square. Captain Bowen Coltest informed them that no information concerning Skeffington was available, and the sooner they left the premises, the better. Not only were they marched off by an armed guard and escorted to the tramway line, but they were also forbidden to speak to each other on the way. Mary said she had a glimpse of hope when told there was no information about Frank, but then she saw the expression on Bowen Coulter's face and all her suspicions were confirmed. It was clear something dreadful has been covered up. This is a picture of uh, the sisters going to... From, there's, there's Hannah on the, on the right, uh, Kathleen in the middle, and um, Mary. And I had thought it was Margaret on the left. It looks like Margaret's profile, but it also looks like their friends Meg Connery of the Franchise League um, in, in, in the light coat. So I think it's Meg Connery, but not absolutely convinced either way whether it's Margaret or Meg. But anyway, they're going to the court-martial of Captain Bowen Colthurst, in which the verdict was guilty but insane. That wasn't enough for Hannah. She went to London. She saw Prime Minister Asquith and managed to get an inquiry, the Simon Inquiry, which took place in August. 
Mary Kettle gave evidence of her fruitless quest to Portobello Barracks. Kathleen was then in London and reading all the newspaper reports of the inquiry. It was hard to follow it all, she thought, as she praised her sister's performance. She said Mary's testimony was most characteristically given in that decided manner typical of her. Mary had provoked uneasy laughter in court when she described Captain Bowen Colthurst as a cold, collector type of Englishman with a peculiar, cruel look which goes with the unimaginative nature. Hannah made out a will. At one stage, I think she was contemplating, you know, no longer being able to live herself, but she wanted to ensure that her son Owen would be brought up as she and Frank would have wished. And so Maurice Wilkins, who'd been a close friend and had helped with the production of the Irish Citizen paper uh, when, when Frank was away, um, and his wife had been treasurer of the Franchise League, was named as co-executor along with her sisters Kathleen and Mary. And it's interesting, Morris's response to Hannah gives you an idea of, of what she expected the executors to, to be doing. He said he was touched and honoured to be asked, although he wondered if he was fitted for the role, as he was not as strict in some points as Hannah supposed. He'd given up vegetarianism on health grounds eight months ago, and he was forced also to confess he was not altogether a non-smoker, nor invariable teetotaler. He was, however, pleased to be able to say he sympathised with their views on organised religion, having no patience with sectarianism and narrowing cults, and Owen's future concerned him very much. So Hannah, while knowing that Kathleen and Mary were strongly Catholic, obviously had no fears that they wouldn't honour her wishes for Owen to be brought up in a secular manner. Tom Kettle, still wearing the uniform of the British Army, had to suffer the pain of seeing his daughter and nephew playing together, running away in fright when he came towards them, khaki-clad, because it wasn't long after Bowen Colthurst had raided the Sheehy Skeffington house, trying to get evidence to prove uh, guilt on Frank's part, and he had worn the same uniform. The Easter Rising and the brutality of the British response ended Kettle's hopes of a peaceful solution to Ireland's struggle for independence, there was no further point in trying to persuade Irish men to enlist in the British Army, so Tom volunteered himself for duty in France and was killed at the Somme on the 9th of September. Mary now joined Hannah in trying to assuage grief through work. Kettle's The Ways of War was published in 1917, accompanied by Mary's long memoir of her husband, written, as she said, with the vision of love. At this stage, Hannah had taken over the editorship of the Irish Citizen, and she did that until 1918, when she went to America for 18 months, publicizing the murder of Frank, because with the wartime censorship of newspapers, the truth couldn't be got out, and she also wanted to publicize what had happened to the Easter Rising and the ideals of those who had taken part. And she was the only Irish uh, Emma Gray in America to be able to who got a, an interview with President Wilson while she was there. It was a huge tribute to the status that she had within that community in America. Well, Connor Cruz O'Brien was born in 1917 to Kathleen, the only positive event really for the Sheehy family now for many years. Uncle Eugene died in July 1917, and Bessie Sheehy died in January 1918, when David then went to live with Mary. 
And Dick Sheehy, uh, the brother, died from TB in 1923. So just to come on to some of the later years of family life and public service. In 1921, at the age of 42, Margaret fell in love with Michael Casey, who was her godson. He was aged 21 and a poet. And when, Mary, uh, when Margaret became pregnant, she was totally disowned by the family, and she and uh, Michael moved to Montreal. Their son Ronan was born in August 1922. And later on, the following months, her son Gary Culhane was sent by the family to join her. I'm not sure why simply Gary, he was the oldest, but the other three Culhane uh, children stayed in Dublin with their grandparents. So Margaret became part of a bohemian set in Montreal, an actress and an elocutionist. Her granddaughter is an academic in Canada, an anthropologist, Dara Culhane, and she's been trying to resurrect the history and, and the biography of her grandmother and has written about this larger-than-life character, a competitive bridge and poker player, hopeless housekeeper and dreadful cook. Um, Michael died in 1939, and Margaret, who was always homesick for Ireland, then returned to Dublin. This is one of the few kind of happy family photos. There aren't that many family photos, um, but this is taken on the Isle of Man, and on the left is, is Mary, on the right is, is Hannah, and Mary's daughter Betty, and Owen Sheehy-Skeffington. Um, and Owen was always seen as a big brother to his cousins, Betty and Connor. And the three sisters, Hannah, Mary and Kathleen, would gather together on Sundays, having lunch and outings with friends coming in the evenings for games, charades and conversation, and the, the younger generation listening on. They also had formed a, a walking group, the Pilgrims, they called, and they used to go around parts of Ireland. A lot of the old suffrage members would join, a lot of them single women, and they, they got great support and companionship throughout the 20s and 30s, um, and even into the early 40s, the pilgrims were still there, but now joined by the, the, the younger generation. Crusoe Brian had died in 1927, so all three sisters were widows, and their father David was a crotchety figure sitting by the fire, going to six masses a day, one for each of his children, apparently. But they finally decided that they needed to create some variety in his life by alternating where he would eat. So Eugene, who is now the only son, had the honour of Sunday dinner. Mary had Tuesday. Hannah's turn was Thursday. And Kathleen had Saturday evenings. David finally died in December 1932. Mary remained a strong campaigner for women. She was an independent member of Dublin City Council and in 1928 was elected its first female chair. Later on, she was joint chair of the Committee of Women's Societies and Social Workers from 1936 right up until 1961, campaigning against government legislation that affected women and uh, children. And there was a lovely event in May 1932 when over 100 feminists came together in the Gresham Hotel to present Mary with a municipal robe and hat. It was a cherry-coloured, fur-trimmed, poplin-lined and embroidered robe embroidered by the women of the Dunema Guild with the inscription that the robe was presented to Mrs Kettle as a tribute for her unfailing loyalty and devotion to women. 
Professor Mary Hayden presided over the event with great warmth and humour. In her speech, she recalled her childhood when the only two ideal paths open to women were that of a religious life or a family life, both ending with a holy death. And at the event, women from the Irish Citizen Army, the Irish Women's Franchise League, non-militant suffragists, the Women's Prisoners' Defence League, and many women who were no longer active in political life all came together, Hannah and Kathleen in the audience. In those, those years, Hannah was very much on the radical Republican spectrum. Um, she was very involved with um, uh, helping to produce the Republican journal and Foblock. And in 1933, she served a month's imprisonment in Armagh jail because she defied an order by the Stormont government which had banned her from entering the six counties. She'd always argued against partition and the treaty because it had cut Ireland, as she said, it made it into a crazy patchwork quilt. And the Skeffington family, which was from the north, um, and most of the relatives came from Dan Patrick, were now people she couldn't um, visit. Frank's aunt lived in Belfast and was ill, and she did come and sneak in and visit her. Um, but this time she had been asked to speak on behalf of women pris in prisoners in Armagh jail and defied the order publicly, and so was arrested and given a month's prison sentence. And it's interesting to see how the family rallied round her despite their varying political views. She wrote immediately to Mary asking for clothes to be sent in and with various messages about having to collect rent for her lodger and things like that. And Mary, when she publicised what happened to Hannah, was also mindful of the sacrifice that had been made by her husband, Tom. So Mary reminded everyone that 50,000 Irishmen had died fighting so that small nations could be free. If her sister couldn't travel freely around Ireland, then their sacrifice had been in vain. Eugene was now a judge on the Monaghan circuit, so he used the old boy's network to get a visit to his sister, explaining, he said, to the astonished prison governor that the criminal of one generation became the judge and lawmaker of the next. Such were the vagaries of Irish politics. In the next few years, Hannah and Mary would be a formidable combination when it came to feminist campaigns against the 1937 Constitution. They both headed delegations to De Valera. They both were very active writing letters to the press. They both spoke at all the public meetings that women organised against the Constitution. Kathleen was different. Her main interest was with the Irish language, and she was a very active teacher and also examiner of Irish. She died very suddenly in February 1938 of a stroke. Hannah at that time was on a lecture tour in America, trying to keep herself busy because Owen was suffering from TB and was in a sanatorium in Switzerland. And because Dick, her brother, had died from TB, Hannah feared the worst, so she wanted to get away and, and forget about things. But Owen was recovering well, and his letters to his mother are very, very sensitive. He said how terrible it was about the horrible news about poor Aunt Cathy. I know this will be a terrible shock to you, as it was to me, and as it must have been to all at home. While he understood Mary's regret that they hadn't managed to persuade Kathleen to rest more, he counselled against feelings of guilt, reassuring his mother. He said she hated resting and she loved her work every minute of it. There'd been talk of her retiring, but I feel glad she didn't. Kay was my favourite aunt, and of course, things at home will never be quite the same again. 
Hannah travelled up to Montreal to be with Margaret uh, before returning to Ireland, and Margaret came home the following year. So Hannah died in 1946, but she stood as an independent candidate for the Doyle in 1943, calling for the formation of a women's political party. She felt sure that with all the campaigning that had, that had been in the 1930s, the time would be right now for women to organise, but actually they, they got very little support in the polls. However, she remained active until the end, and her daughter-in-law, Andre, was one of the co-founders of the Irish Women's Housewife League. Andre said to me when she told uh, Hannah what they had formed, Hannah was delighted until she told her what the name was, and she said Hannah tapped her fingers and said, you're not married to the home you know, um, but still was a great supporter. Margaret died in 1955, and Mary not until 1967, aged 83, um, after a lifetime of public service. But I think in their different ways, all the Sheehy sisters left their mark on the world. Thank you. Thank you.